It is a distinct joy as the followers of Jesus Christ to trust God when we understand what He's doing. Having embraced the gospel, we believe that God loves us and that His purposes for us in Christ are infinitely wise and good. And so when we can clearly see God's love and wisdom displayed in the outworking of the circumstances of life, our faith soars. We know this God. We love this God. We can understand what He is doing. It is a thrill to watch Him work. But it is another matter altogether when we cannot figure out what on earth God is doing. Our faith easily falters in that gap between the promises of God to work all things together for good on the one hand, and on the other hand, the trials and heartaches of life that seem to render that promise impossible. As we rejoin the newly emancipated Israelites, they are experiencing that great confidence in God. God has poured out ten miraculous judgments upon Egypt, and His sovereign power and love for His people is on great display. Israel has been liberated from slavery. She has been enriched by the Egyptians, and she is overflowing with confidence in God for now. We join the general travel notes at verse 17 of Exodus chapter 13. At verse 17, we pick up when Pharaoh let the people go. God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. It was utterly impossible for Israel to liberate herself from Egypt. Only the miraculous intervention of God could possibly accomplish this. Now, what could God do here? He could obviously continue to perform miraculous powers and run the Philistines and the Canaanites right out of the promised land. God could do that, but that is not His intention. His intention is to have Israel carve out her inheritance by warring with the Canaanites. Yet God realizes here at this point Israel is not ready for that. Newly liberated from Egypt, she is not yet ready for all-out war. They are in Egypt in the Delta area and they're heading east. The shortest route to the Promised Land is right along the sea and up into this area of the Philistines. So This would be the most natural route. God takes them around that route and they will head south into the Sinai Peninsula. It's not what makes sense as far as gaining the promised land. We notice here that Israel is armed for battle. The Hebrew text does not emphasize Israel's preparedness for war as much as the idea that they are marching in orderly fashion. In other words, this is not a panicked exodus. This is something that God has planned. He has organized the Israelites and they are leaving in orderly fashion. This was clearly God's doing. And the direction that they take is clearly God's doing. We have here a reference to the sea, that they are are heading toward the Red Sea. 
You will notice in your marginal note, I think in perhaps every translation that has marginal notes, you will find that the Hebrew phrase here is Yam Suf, or the Sea of Reeds. The Red Sea comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, but we find that Yam Suf was sometimes used in reference to the Red Sea, so it was sometimes called the Reed Sea. There are other times when there are some lakes that are up in this region that are, were referred to as the Reed Sea. So sometimes it's the whole thing, uh, the Reed Sea, and sometimes it is just the lakes that are referred to up in this region. The point with reed being that there has to be some sort of fresh water, uh, low-lying water there for the reeds to form. And so we are probably talking here about the, the northern extension of the Red Sea as uh, the place where God points the Israelites. Now notice verse 19. More on that in a moment. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. You notice again, in a marginal note, very likely, a reference back to Genesis 50 and verse 25. This is precisely what Joseph had said to the Israelites many, many years before. It indicates Joseph's faith in God's promise. Genesis 15 and verse 13 God had said that the Israelites would be 400 years in Egypt, and Joseph believes God at his word, believes that they will go back. There is also, I think here, the reference to Joseph, an indication that the time in Egypt is over. Joseph brought Israel to Egypt. Now Joseph's money goes with Israel out of Egypt. It's over. In fact, in the biblical text, Egypt will never again play a prominent role in the life of Israel. They will factor in from time to time, but Egypt is past history. Israel has been liberated. Egypt is in her rearview mirror. Verse 20, after leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. Nobody really knows where these places are, and if you find that they're on a map, in an atlas, it looks real authoritative when it has that little dot there and the name next to it. But they really were really not sure where these places were. They were just outposts on the outside of Egypt and are no longer identifiable to us today. The reason that maps locate them comes down to the direction they believe the Israelites took out of Egypt. There was one of three directions. Now, it seems pretty obvious to us that they did not head toward Philistia, which uh, some scholars nonetheless say they did, uh, who, those who love to debate with the biblical text, I guess. But uh, there are three routes, and depending on where they left, we don't know exactly where these places of stoppage were or encampment were actually located. But though unknown to us, it is clear that they are on the fringes of Egyptian civilization on the edge of the deserted area to the east. And we ask the question, why did God stop them at Sukkoth, and why did He then send them to Etham, this vast company of people? Why, to ask it another way, did they not go north to Canaan? We see that God does not want them to go to war, but there's another reason. I think we'll come to that momentarily. But at this point, verse 21, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. 
Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Some argue that there were two pillars here. I think probably more likely there is one. In the daytime, it appears as this great cloud, a pillar rising up into the sky. At night, the glory of God's presence in that cloud illumines the cloud and makes it look like a torch that goes out in front of the people. Some Bible interpreters trip all over themselves to argue away every miracle in this text of Scripture. So many of them have a very ingenious answer to this, and that's that this was the torch that the leaders of the company held high above the Israelites, and in the day the cloud was their, was their censers and the incense that was rising from them. Pretty amazing that these guys held a torch and burned incense for 40 years, and it's pretty amazing that this incense protected the Israelites from the whole Egyptian army, but we won't worry about those details here. When you're trying to talk away the miracles, you really come up with some ingenious answers. There's many other ideas. Some would even have said that it was a storm cloud, which again, uh, boy, that's a, that's a uh, ziggy day, isn't it? 40 years of storm cloud right over your head. This is a cloud of God. It's the presence of the Lord with the Israelites. And this is so clear as we see below. If we take the text of Scripture to say what it says, verse 21 says, By day the Lord went ahead of them. God's presence is with His people as He delivers them and now guides them through the desert. Think in themes here. Not simply in history, but think in themes. How does God work? What is the nature of God's deliverance? What is the nature of God's character as He works with His people? He delivers them and then He guides them. His presence is with them in the desert. Now at this point, we read of a tactical maneuver on God's part that entraps Pharaoh. Chapter 14 and verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-ha-haroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. So the entire company, let's stop for just a moment, the entire company of Israelites was to reverse direction and set up camp by the sea. This would be the Reed Sea, whatever that is. The location of this camp has exercised scholars for a long time and much, much ink has been spilled in the process. My own conclusion in reading upon this is that the Reed Sea was a large lake that extended to the north of the Gulf of Suez and was likely connected to the Red Sea in that day. So it would have been seen as the Reed Sea. It could have been seen as the Red Sea. In a sense, it was both and. The Reed Sea would allow for reeds to be growing around the fresh water in that, that area. And the, the Red Sea, there are some complications with the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. One of the complications is that unless they just skirted the edge, allowing the Egyptians to ride along the side, if, there, if there's so much water on either side that the Egyptians cannot come to them, the most narrow stretch across the Red Sea is 124 miles. And it goes to the most shallow spot there of about 600 feet in depth. It's difficult to believe that the entire nation of Israel made that journey in one night. In fact, really in the early morning hours when they are already by. But the point here is that they are in a very vulnerable position. Egypt is on the west, the Reed Sea is on the east, 
And we ask the question of why does God do this? Back to the Reed Sea in a moment. Hang in there. But in verse 3 we read that Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. This is what God is striving to do, to send this message to Pharaoh. The notion that Israel is confused and vulnerable is going to jumpstart his thinking, verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. God again hardens Pharaoh's heart. God's hardening activity does not occur in a vacuum writes one commentator, it is not contrary to Pharaoh's own general will about the matter. God intensifies a well-ingrained proclivity. It's a good phrase, a well-ingrained proclivity, a leaning on Pharaoh's part to not regard the word of God. God hardens that in place. He uses existent human stubbornness against itself by closing down available options. Now, the reason that this author writes in this way, I don't follow, I don't agree with his direction here, but I think he says this very well. This is Pharaoh's bent, and God does nothing to turn him away from it, but we can say then hardens his heart. As Peter Enns writes, like a master chess player, God induces Pharaoh to move his king into checkmate, and he doesn't even realize it. What is God doing in it all, verse 4? It is not merely delivering the Israelites. I will gain glory for myself. Or said another way, I will put this world in order for this moment. That I will be God and that all will recognize who I truly am. In verse 5, we read on, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with the officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. This phrase, marching out boldly, is the Hebrew phrase that they left with a, a high hand. They extended their hand to Pharaoh. The idea is they are not running, they are not panicking, they are saying, we are following the deliverance of God. And they are purposefully running from Egypt. And when I use the word running, it's not panic, but they are liberated. Pharaoh steps in here and says no, thinking that Israel is lost and confused and knowing that they are pinned against the sea and still insisting that he holds the rights to God's firstborn, Pharaoh mobilizes his troops and unwittingly moves them into checkmate. Verse 9, the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Haharoth, opposite Baal, Zephon. It's difficult to imagine here. Put yourself in that spot. It is really difficult to imagine the fear that was struck in the hearts of the Israelites right at this point. They are in a militarily weak position. There is a sea to their back. And as they are journeying, we just picture them in the moment, there's a sentry that calls out, 
and the company turns to see dust rising off the surface of the desert. Their worst fears are confirmed as the earth begins to shake, as the sentries sound wildly the alarm, and there in full view now comes a trained army ready to crush them. They were, as we use the phrase, sitting ducks. There was nowhere to run, and there was nowhere to hide. They were, to borrow a phrase, between the devil and the deep blue sea. The Egyptian chariots were legendary. I have a couple pictures here for you. We just get an idea of it. In this time, this look doesn't look very significant to us, but in this time, these chariots were feared. They were pulled behind a horse, and gave just room for uh, one, some would argue sometimes two, soldiers to be there, uh, one working with the horse and one with a bow and arrow uh, ready to strike. These were devastating machines at that time and made Egypt the most powerful army on the face of the earth. The next picture we can see even back in their own time as is preserved by their own um, depictions We have here a chariot drawn by a horse. This was their pride and joy. This was to a primitive people almost something like a a jet fighter flying in, in formation, ready to bomb the people. They knew they were dead. Thank you. And now 600 of these chariots plus, pulled by horses that had been sheltered from the hail in 920, are descending upon Israel. Israel is dead In the water, as we say. We see then at this very point that Israel loses her faith. Verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. As the next verse will indicate, it was not a cry of faith. Israel's faith had been strong when she could understand what God was doing. But suddenly she found herself in that impossible situation. And she cried out to God, demanding to know what on earth he was doing here. And in what will will become a pattern, Israel now lashes out at God's chosen leader in verse 11. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Faith is gone. And Moses is the bad guy. Now we don't know if the Israelites actually did lodge this complaint earlier or not. That text is not given to us. Perhaps this is a lie intended to heap further blame upon Moses. All we can know is that this is an immature a self-centered, a disrespectful, and a faithless complaint against Moses. Put another way, Israel is blind to what God is doing. God is keeping His grand design. He He is working His grand design. He is maneuvering to display His glory and to nurture Israel's faith. But Israel can't see that right now. All that Israel can see is what's in front of her. How God could possibly save them from this is impossible to know. And so utter despair 
descends upon them, and they lash out at Moses. Israel was skipping for joy as she exited Egypt. She followed Moses with undivided loyalty right up until the moment that she changed her mind. Now in stark contrast to her faithless response, we read that Moses preaches faith in God. Verse 13, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. He doesn't mean by that, don't move a muscle. He means put your full trust in God. He will deliver you. These are words of unshakable faith and spiritual maturity. Moses could have defended himself. When we think on the maturity issue, he could have defended himself. This was entirely unfair and improper. But he doesn't. He points to God. This is not the Moses of chapter 4, is it? The Moses who said, I can't do this. I don't have the speech to follow through and go before Pharaoh. This is the Moses with renewed faith. It's not I can't, but now it's he can. So the Israelites are fixated on the cloud of smoke that's rising from the desert floor off the heels of the Egyptian soldiers and horses. And Moses is fixated on the cloud over their heads. And he says, I believe. I trust God. And God delivers according to Moses' prophecy. Verse 15, Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Apparently Moses lodges Israel's complaint with God, and God says, This is not time for a prayer meeting. This is time for prayerful action. There are times when our prayer meetings conveniently avoid obedience. And in such times, prayer meetings do not glorify God. They put Him to the test. Moses, it's not time to talk to me about this. It's time to move. This is not time for a prayer meeting, but for prayerful action. And So in verse 16, he says to Moses, Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God lays out the plan. And as C.S. Lewis reminds us, Aslan is not a tame lion. He will take these lives in stark fashion And he will prove thereby for generations to come that no power can stand against his judgment and no power will inflict pain upon his people unless he wills it. This judgment is necessary for many reasons. But I think this judgment is necessary in part, if I could just choose one idea, that we will know that when Assyria inflicts judgment on Israel, it's God's doing. And when Babylon to come inflicts judgment on Israel, it's God's doing. God demonstrates for us here that He can stop any army dead in its tracks. And He prepares Moses to receive this deliverance. But the problem remains. 
How in the world is God going to do this? Verse 19, Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness on the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. So you have this plan to divide the sea, but you're never going to get into the sea unless God somehow stops the army of Israel. So the cloud goes from in front of Israel to behind Israel and stands between the Israelites and the Egyptians. It so shrouds the Egyptians in darkness that they are unable to see what Israel is doing on the other side and unable to move in the darkness of that night. While on the other side of the cloud, the glory of God shines toward the waters and allows the Israelites to pass through. Verse 21, Moses stretches out his hand over the sea. And all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Let's stop for a moment here. and I just want to share a few concepts with you, then we'll get back to the major point. But we have an east wind here which calls us to consider that this is not just an immediate miraculous event. Just boom, there's a lane in the sea, but there's an east wind all night pointing to some natural phenomenon. Now there are two possibilities that uh, researchers have come up with as to how God did this. The most obvious for us is that God stacked the waters up on both sides. That he just plowed a funnel right through this end of the Red Sea, this portion of water, so that there's water on either side standing up like a wall, a literal wall on either side. And I think that is very possible. There's no reason for us to doubt that that could have happened. There is another possibility, and I want to just offer it as a possibility, because as we look at the ten plagues, we see that God uses natural means. Flies are part of nature. And locusts are part of nature. And the hail is part of nature. God is using natural phenomena to judge Egypt. It is possible then, with the reference here to this east wind, there has, there has been known for, for a long time to be lakes in this area that were probably connected with the Red Sea at this time. Lakes that elevated their level with the rising of the sea and dropped at ebb tide, at low tide. It is possible that through a particularly sizable shift in the level of the sea, uh, we're, as uh, Minnesotans, the, 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 the waters around us kind of always stay in the same place, unless there's a drought. But as, as you know, if you've been at the ocean, you know there's the, the high tide and the low tide. The tides are always coming in and coming out routinely over hours of uh, periods of time. And as this happens in this area of the Red Sea, these lakes will rise, in, in, uh, they will fill with water, and then at low tide they will empty, and many times that water will run right through the earth. It is possible with a particularly sizable ebb that the waters receded to either side, forming a land bridge across a fairly shallow lake. When I say shallow lake, 
plenty to drown a person, but a fairly shallow lake, allowing the Israelites to walk on the other side uh, through the night. It is possible then in the morning as the Egyptians come back that they are drowned in those waters through this means. It makes no difference. If God wants to tunnel right through the Red Sea and, and put a wall of water on either side, we can uh, hold to that. But we would ask, if it was this, uh, the, the level of the sea that is the answer to this and what God used miraculously to let the Israelites through, what about this wall of water then? What we would have to say then is that the wall of water was figurative, that it was a barrier. That is, the Egyptians could not attack either flank of the Israelites, either to the right or the left, because there was water there and uh, the land bridge was, was dry. I don't know that that's what happened, but I think that there is possibility for that. I just give it to you for something on which to chew. It doesn't really make a lot of difference to us. Ultimately, we do know that in the figure of Scripture, they were baptized in the water. That is, they were covered on either side and above by water and passed through on this dry ground, which God miraculously provides for them. Whatever means he happens to use, we notice as God predicted in verse 23, carrying on, that the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire. So somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., while it's still dark, the Egyptians have now made their way in, onto this land bridge, onto this dry ground, and God from the pillar of fire and cloud, the Egyptian army is thrown into confusion. And God makes the wheels of their chariots come off so that they have difficulty driving. Now if we have two walls of water on either side, then we're really not sure what this confusion is. Some type of miraculous confusion where the wheels just come off the chariots. If we go back to the idea of the rising of the sea, that that is part of the way that God worked to bring this about, then what is probably happening is the water is pushing up through the ground as the sea level rises, and as the Egyptians are making their way across this lake, their wheels get mired in the mud, and as the horses pull, they pull the wheels right off the chariots. And all of a sudden, they're looking at the rising of these waters, which come on either side to come pouring back upon them. Whether it's a wall or whether the wall is figurative of the lakes that are a barrier, in either case, the water comes now tumbling back upon them, and they run, for reasons we don't know, right into the water. In verse 25, the bottom part, of, or the second part of the verse, verse 25, the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. They get the idea. Their intention is to slaughter Israel, but that intention would boomerang back on their own heads. Indeed, they were literally in over their heads. Verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it. We don't know what that means precisely, but they're fleeing toward the rushing waters, and the Lord and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. 
We have God, we have Moses, and we have nature combining to crush Egypt's army. The wall of water comes crashing down upon them. They go running into it. And there is also, I think as we read earlier in Psalm 77, a possibility that there is a great storm that takes place right here. As Psalm 77, referring to this very event, says that waters were falling from the heavens and so the Egyptians are drowned in a moment of time. And God shows that He is God and will back down to no army and will never be thwarted by an army of man. Verse 29, But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses, His servant. So having witnessed the deliverance of the Lord, the people fear Him and they put their trust in Him once again. And knowing that Moses trusted God before witnessing God's deliverance, the people appropriately put their confidence in Him. He is a man of great faith in the power of God. Their faith, their lack of faith, led them to despair and doubt. Moses' faith led to triumphant joy. And at least for now, Israel is willing to jump on Moses' back and to follow his leading through the desert. As they stand there on the shores of the Reed Sea, they understand what God is doing and they believe. And it calls upon us today to consider where do you stand in relationship to the power and the authority and the deliverance of God. We must realize that this text is no isolated event recorded here for our mere curiosity. There's an awful lot of curiosity in it. And it takes our attention to consider what may have happened and how God orchestrated this miraculous event. But we learn from the example of Israel, that God can always be trusted to deliver His people and to work out their circumstances for good. This is the point. I believe the miracle that God worked here with all of my heart. But the point is not simply to get sucked into what happened in the miracle, but to realize that this is who God is. He is a, a God who delivers now, it is a wrong application, and I steer you very decisively away from this to go home and say, okay, I see all of life from this perspective as a God who delivers. Now, God, open up a way in the sea that's in front of me. Take away the circumstances of trouble that I'm dealing with right now. We can tend to think that way, particularly as individualistic Westerners. I want God to open up a sea for me. And to get the problems over with that I'm dealing with. I feel like I'm between a rock and a hard place. I feel like I'm be between the devil and the deep blue sea. And I hope for God to now solve my problem. Let me trust Him. Let me call upon Him. Let me have the faith that Moses had and my troubles will all go away. We know clearly that that's not a faithful application of this text of Scripture. We must remember that Israel was enslaved for a very long time. For generations. There were people who died in that trial, in that suffering and difficulty. They went on to their eternal reward and God never did anything to deliver them from, his, from Egypt.
What we can take from this passage is that God is always at work for the good of his people. Always. In all things. At all times. He knew this would take 400 years to get Israel out of Egypt. He said that in Genesis 15 before Israel was ever in Egypt. He is always, in all circumstances, at all times, working for the good of His people. This we see displayed right in front of us. In fact, the whole of redemption history revolves around this Exodus theme. God is in the process from the beginning of time in the first sin until the very end when all is returned to Eden to bring His people in deliverance out of their struggle and trial. This exodus is not an isolated event. It's a pattern showing how God sovereignly works in this world to save His people. Do you remember Hosea 11 quoted in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15? God brings His Son out of Egypt. It points us back in Jesus Christ. It points us back to this very theme of Exodus from Egypt. This theme has been building throughout the text of Genesis. As we see Joseph going in, and we see Jacob being brought back out at the time of his death and burial in Israel. We see this theme now with Joseph himself having come into Egypt and now his mummy being taken out. And then we see the pattern that the Scriptures themselves make with Jesus Christ, who as a child was taken into Egypt and brought back out. It is as if Matthew is saying, watch this one. He is the great and new Moses who will lead the people of Israel out of bondage. Do you remember back to Luke chapter 9 and verse 31? It doesn't find its way into many English translations, but for those that remember back that far, do you remember we landed on Luke chapter 9 and verse 31 on the fact that Moses appeared with Elijah and talked to Jesus on the mountain when Christ was transfigured? What did they talk about? They talked about, in the Greek text, his exodus, which was soon to happen in Jerusalem. I don't think that's a mistake that Luke puts that word right there. Jesus' exodus from Jerusalem. The Exodus Passover event points us unmistakably to Jesus Christ and the ultimate act of God to save His people from death. The Passover deliverance where the Lamb was slain to free the firstborn is realized and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who pays the penalty of sin, who dies in the place of the sinner. So this newer and fuller Moses, Jesus faces the sea of death and he splits it wide open. And remember how it's said in John chapter 5 and verse 24, we have passed from death into life through Jesus Christ. His exodus through death can become our exodus through death. And the Scriptures teem with this idea of Jesus' victory over the powers of death. Ephesians 6 and verse 12, I, I quote, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
You think Israel had a problem when she was pinned against the sea with the Egyptian army coming at her. We don't even realize what our problems are. We've got an army of spiritual powers that come against us and descend upon us. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but in his death and resurrection, hear the words of Paul in Colossians 2 and verse 15, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The greatest enemy is not the approaching army of Pharaoh. The greatest enemy for us is death itself. And Jesus Christ triumphed over these powers of death and darkness and sin and Satan when He defeated death in the resurrection. And so today, says Paul to the Corinthians, then the end will come when He, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after He has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. Do you hear it? He's crushed the authorities, but they're still there. There's still a subjugation that's taking place. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So for us in this day, death has marched upon us. Sin and the wages of sin, which is death, has come down upon us and continues to plague us. But Jesus Christ has won the ultimate victory. He split the sea of death and He walked through it on the other side. And He will bring His people into the deliverance that He has won. The victory over death has been won. The battles and the skirmishes continue. The powers have not been all put down and finalized and thrown into the lake of fire. But that's where we're headed as the book of Revelation makes so very clear. And as the book of Revelation picks up right from the book of Exodus and the plagues and the judgments that fall upon sinless, sinful humanity. We have ten plagues in the Red Sea in Egypt. We have this same theme in the book of Revelation as God crushes His enemy finally. For Israel then, it was always to look back to a divided sea and to know there that God in His miraculous power had delivered Israel from death. For us, it's to look where? We look back today to the divided sea, and we say that's our God. That's the God who loves His people and delivers them at any cost, who can come up with amazing ideas to deliver His people. But we don't stop there. We know that the deliverance through the Red Sea is leading us to understand who Jesus Christ is and to know that the final and ultimate battle has been won at the cross. That Jesus has defeated death, the ultimate enemy. Now hold that thought in mind for just a moment. Let's go back to Israel. Don't you say sometimes, what is wrong with these knuckleheads? Ten plagues on Egypt. How can they not get the idea God's on their side? God's going to bring them through all of these plagues. He's going to deliver them out of Egypt from the most powerful army on earth, and He's going to enrich them with all of the riches of Egypt, and then he's going to bring them into the desert to slaughter them. We say, what in, the wrong, what in the world is wrong with them? They see the hand and the power of God. Well, you know what was wrong with Israel is the very same thing that's wrong with us. We see an empty tomb, and yet we ask, 
God, how could you possibly work this out for good? We see an empty tomb, and yet we look at the troubles of life that pin us up against the trial, or as the phrase is said, the devil in the deep blue sea. And we say, where is God? You see, it's one thing to trust Him when we can see what He is doing. As we talked with our new members class this morning, I shared some stories of people in our church where you can see the hand of God so clearly it gives you chills. At times like that, it's so easy to believe in God, to trust Him when you see lives transformed and changing and growing and God working uniquely in your circumstances to elevate His glory and to bring you through. But then we come to those times when we can't figure out what God is doing. And we wonder how in the world He could possibly bring good out of these circumstances. And in that moment, we have the tendency to turn our back on a blood-stained cross and an empty tomb. And like Israel of old, we doubt. The center for Israel was the Passover. And the center for us is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Knowing that He in our place died and in our place defeated death, we can rest with confidence that the love of God will never leave us or forsake us. That He will work out all circumstances for good. That He will love His people infinitely and wisely to the very end. What we must do is trust. And it gets so hard when you see the smoke rising off the desert. And you feel the ground shaking all around and you say it's the end. We can't get through this. There's no way God is in it. I encourage you, spin on your heel and look upward. Get your eyes off the smoke on the desert floor and the dust that rises there and look to the cloud of the glory of God and know in the cross and in the tomb He has you covered. And He will deliver. We have to be patient. We have to stand and wait confidently for the deliverance of God. And it may not always come in this life. But He will deliver. We can know it because there's an empty tomb. He has dealt with death and He will in the end crush death and sorrow and disease and trial and difficulty and the very presence of Satan and hell and all that he works in horrors in this world will be thrown into the lake of fire. The point for us is to make sure that we're on God's side and to stand strong and wait for the deliverance of our God. It will come. We know that it will come. Let's ask him.
to strengthen us in our weakness. Our Father, we come before you in prayer. Prayers of repentance, for we know that we fall short of the glory of God, and our faith proves weak, and we see how tremendously you have loved us, and yet we doubt. We all do. Father, we confess our sin, we confess our weakness, and we thank you for bringing us back again to the cross and to the empty tomb. I pray that our faith would strengthen and grow under the trials of life that we face. That you'd bring us back to our center and help us to look not at the troubled clouds on the horizon, but to look to the glory cloud of God. And may you lead us and deliver us. Father, we go through a hard time. We're going through a hard time as a church. And there are struggles that people are facing beyond what is evident to us. We ask, dear Father, that you would deepen our faith and strengthen our capacity to trust your hand and not blink as the trials descend upon us, but to know that you have a purpose and a plan and you are working it. And God, in our prayers right now, I believe that I pray for this assembly and represent them to say, we want you to be glorified in our difficulties. We want you to be glorified in the trials of life that we face We long for your name to be elevated and exalted and for people to gain deliverance in salvation by the way that we handle the trials that we go through. God, help us and aid us in our weakness. May we not be like the Israelites who always had to see what you were doing to believe. But I pray that we, like Moses, would say that you, our God, are always trustworthy and always working all things together for good. And I know as I look into the faces of this assembly, Father, it's hard for me to hold it together. Because I know as I look around this congregation that there are people who are dealing with hard matters in life. And we lift up before you our missionaries and your people throughout the world who suffer difficulty and trial The Egyptian armies are real. And Father, for us, it's the spiritual armies that assault us, and the trials of life are very real. But we say together in prayer today, so are you. And we say with all of our heart that we trust that you will glorify your name and bring joy to our soul through all eternity, through the trials that we face. Help us to believe. For anyone here that is separated from you through their sin, I pray that you'd bring them into the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Should it be your mercy and grace, we pray that you'd do that today. And that you would show us your work and your presence in our midst. Our hope, Father, is in you. Thank you. for your power and your goodness and your love. Help us to trust to the very end when the trials of life will explode into glory for all eternity. Help us to hold on. In the name of Christ, I pray.
Amen.